the parable of the talents. So, for it has, for it is a, if, as if a man going on a journey summoned his slaves and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. Then one who received the five talents went off at once and traded with them and made five more talents. In the same way, the one who had but the two talents had made two more talents. But the one who had received one talent went off and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. Then the one who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five more talents, saying, Master, you handed over to me five talents. See, I have made five more talents. His master said to him, Well, well done, good and trustworthy slave. You have been trustworthy in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And then the one with the two talents came forward saying, Master, you handed over to me two talents. And see, I've made two more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and trustworthy slave. You have been trustworthy in a few things, and I will put um, you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Then the one who had received the one talent also came forward saying, Master, I knew that you were a harsh man and reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you did not scatter seed. So I was afraid and I went to hid the, your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his master replied, you wicked and lazy slave, you knew, you, you knew did you? that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I did not scatter when you ought to have invested my money with the bankers and on my return I would have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him um, and give it to the one with the ten talents for all those who have more will be given and they will have an abundance but from those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. And is for this worthless slave, throw him into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the word of God for the people of God. Such a beautiful parable and um, maybe troubling too. Um, my name is Brittany, so welcome. It's good to have you guys here. I'm the pastor. We're going to um, dive into the scripture passage, but I want to I pray first. Holy and gracious God, it is often for me in the most troubling pari- parables, the um, ones that have the biggest trigger alert, that when I abide, I find your presence fourfold. Open our ears on this day. Open our hearts in this moment. 
that we might see you and know you and trust to live in your abundance. In Jesus' name we pray. So uh, I have this friend who was telling me a story recently about the first time that she was um, entrusted with caring for her nine-year-old brother. She was 12, and she felt the awesome responsibility. She felt fear over the responsibility of caring for him. They had decided to go on their first outing, and they were going to go to the movie theater. And as they went into the movie theater line, she was just scanning the crowd, stranger danger, you know, to make sure that nothing was going to happen to her little brother. She was so scared she would mess up this opportunity to care for him. They went and got their tickets, and she continued to diligently watch to make sure nobody was going to come and snap him. Um, They went to the concession stand, and um, they ordered their drinks and got some popcorn, And as they were walking to to hand their tickets off to the theater, my friend Lucy took a drink of her cola. It did not taste right, and she was very concerned. She took another drink of it and confirmed that it tasted awful. And she drew the only logical conclusion that a 12-year-old who was diligently watching her younger brother could draw, the drinks were poisoned. She took the drink and slapped it out of his hand. She threw hers away, and she felt satisfied that she had rescued him from the perils of poison. She went over back to the concession stand to let them know of the situation so that no other nine-year-olds would be poisoned and discovered that this, after all, what, what happened was they forgot to put the syrup into the soda, so she was just drinking bubbly water, right? But as she was telling me this story, I was struck by what happens when our motive, um, our um, overwhelmed sense of stewarding something, when that is guided by fear, right? We suddenly see poison in our bubbly water instead of just realizing that it's bubbly water. So today I want to talk to you um, about uh, this idea of fear and stewardship and how they are connected together. Um, Instead of managing the resources that we have out of fear, I want to begin to invite us to think about what it would be like to live in the possibility, uh, live in this imagined world of stewarding our resources because God has entrusted the resources to us. Stewarding Stewarding them in a way that produces God's economy, which we've been talking about, right? Stewarding them in the way that that shows we are investing in God's economy. Now, I want to begin by saying, I I mentioned this earlier, but sometimes there's there's a few things about this passage that might be a little bit difficult to digest, and I just want to name that out loud, right? That last line, we, we talk about throwing someone to the outer darkness, and then we say, the word of God for the people of God. Isn't this so great? Um... That's a little hard. I want to acknowledge that, right? Um, and we're going to get to that. Um, but that, you know, oftentimes this parable, and I'm going to choose to look at it this way, though there's other ways you can look at it. I want to interpret this parable that the landowner is God, okay? So we're just going to, we're going to live with that today. Um, I might preach from this scripture passage uh, in a couple years from now, and I won't interpret it that way, okay? It doesn't, it, it doesn't have to be, but today I'm going to do that. And so it feels especially disturbing to me that I see God saying, you, go into the outer darkness where there will be gnashing of teeth. 
We're going to come back to that, um, but I just want to lay it out there because I don't want to pretend like it doesn't exist. Um, particularly if you're new to Christianity. Actually, heck, if you've been a Christian your whole life, it's still disturbing, right? The second piece of complexity that I want to sort of lay out or, or offer is that um, it has to do with how we interpret this parable. I, th- I think an irresponsible interpretation of this parable is to say, oh, well, clearly what Jesus is saying in this parable is that the rich will get richer and the poor are just going to have to continue to survive. So, awesome. Um, but that could be how some people inter- In fact, I think I might have heard a sermon about that one time. Um, I think that's irresponsible, and I think if you look at the whole gospel, uh, where you see Jesus saying, blessed are the poor, where you see Jesus and Luke say, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, and I've come to bring good news to the poor, where you see Jesus uh, later uh, in Matthew, just right around here, say, it's harder to go through the eye of a, a rich person to go through the eye of a needle than a ca- uh, for a camel than a rich person to get into the kingdom of God. Like, I think that um, that's a, just a lousy interpretation, okay? So I want to lay that out here. So Jesus must be saying something else. The problem is uh, we have to figure out what's going on in this parable, and we have to figure out what Jesus is saying, because he's definitely, definitely, I mean, you could push back, but he's definitely praising the people who double their money, right? Like, that's, I don't think that's subjective. And the thing that I find difficult about that is because I know how to make money in this world, And it's often on the backs of other people, right? The reason that slavery lasted in America so long is because it was an economic system that allowed people to be oppressed so that we could make more money. The reason the prison industrial complex complex is happening right now, it's for several reasons, but it's also about industries being able to make a lot of money on the backs of prisoners who are in, earning pennies a day, right? So I know how we perceive that we make money in the U.S., how we can double our dollars, and so it's really disturbing for me to sit in this passage and think about what it means to invest and double our money, right? Um, and yet, I cannot deny that Jesus, this translation that we use, the NRSV, doesn't say this as clearly, but Um, Some of the other translations say it more clearly. You cannot deny that Jesus starts out this parable by saying the kingdom of heaven is like. The kingdom of heaven is like someone who's doubled their money. Right. I want to unpack this phrase kingdom of heaven for a minute. Um, We have been using the phrase God's economy in the sermon series because we don't think about what kingdoms are so much, but we know what an economy is, right? Economy is how we change services and goods, how we uh, trade them. So the kingdom of heaven, God's economy, it's not capitalistic, it's not democratic, it's not a republic. It is something entirely different. It's a new reign of God where each child and one of God, and you're a child of God and you're a child of God. I'm not talking about just the children. I'm talking about adults too. Each child of God is seen as valuable and worthy and beloved. That's the kingdom of God. That's God's economy. It is a place where all people have what they need and a place where we don't get what we need by scheming another person out of what they need. So this kingdom of God, God's economy, is this place of abundance and bounty and not the place of scarcity that we see living out in the U.S. economy. 
So I did a bit of research and um, uh, the average person in Chicago earns $35,000. The reason I bring this up is because if we dig into the scripture and we see uh, what they're talking about, they're talking about talents. And talents is, is uh, one talent is anywhere from 10 to 15 years wage. So I cut it in half and decided to do the math on fi- 10 to 20 years wage. I cut it in half and decided to do it on 15 years wage. So $35,000 times 15 years wage. Anybody really good with math? It's almost, it's um, just a little over $500,000. So it's about half a million dollars. So the person that got one talent got about $500,000. The person that got five talents got about $2.6 million. Okay? Now, I don't know about you, what, what would you do if your boss, if, if, you, if the landowner, your boss, came to you and said, hey, can you watch this for a little bit? Here's $500 million in cash. Can you watch this? I don't know about you, but I'd take a knife, and I would slash open my mattress, and I would bury that money in the bed and hope that nobody came to rob me. Or maybe not. I don't know. What would you do? What would you do if your boss handed you $500 million? <laughs> what? <laughs> you might throw it in the bank, but uh, you're, you're not really getting any interest. At, you know, you're getting, yeah. What would you do with five, if your boss said, can you watch this? Here's $500 million. <laughs> what? What? Put it into four one. Now I want to. I want to note. I want to show you. Uh, I love that. Good and sound wise. It actually. It doesn't say. I, I use the word give. The scripture says, the the man entrusts the property. Okay. So it's not. It's not like fully your money, but you've been entrusted with it. So what would you do with it? I think it actually depends. I mean, you guys can shout out some answers. I think it actually depends on what your relationship looks like with that boss, what your relationship looks like with the person who has entrusted the money to you. Um, We don't get to hear the rationale for the first two slaves uh, about why they decided to invest and play the market and try to double their money, but we do get to hear the rationale for the last guy and why he didn't, right? And what we heard from him is... I know, what are the exact words? I knew that you were a harsh man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you did not scatter seed. So I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. I was afraid. And so I operated out of scarcity and buried that money. I was afraid. I perceived this, right? We don't know if this is true, if, if, this, if this landowner was harsh. Um, I sort of think maybe it's possible, especially if we're looking at it as God. I know the landowner's not harsh, but our perceptions color the ways that we deal with things, right? When I was in high school, I had uh, this friend, and she... Uh, played the violin, 
And so that's far more sophisticated than most of my rural corn-eating 3,000 town people in my town. You know, nobody was playing the violin. She's far more sophisticated. Um, she also was very quiet. And she wasn't one of those people that, like, across the room, you'd be like, hey, how you doing? She's reserved, quiet. Uh, I think we call that introverted, right? I knew her to be funny. I knew her to be a lot of fun. Um, I knew her to be very kind and sensitive. And oftentimes, people would say, I can't believe you're friends with Julia. She is so stuck up. I can't believe that you are friends with Julia. She's always scowling and mean. I can't believe that you're friends with Julia because she is never talking to me or engaging me in conversation. She, I think she's really rude. And I started to reflect on that. And then some people thought Julia was great, right? And I started to reflect on that and think, like, oh, actually, it has to do with those people's perceptions of her, not actually what Julia's doing, right? Our perceptions color how we engage in this world. And so I think their fear of her, their fear of um, her quietness, of her sophisticated violin ta talent, colored their, they didn't know how to engage with her. Do you see how our own insecurities might filter the way that we perceive God? Do you see how our own perceptions um, might influence the way that we engage in this world because of how we view God? I wonder about all the decisions we make, the social decisions we make, the vocational decisions we make, the financial decisions we make. I wonder how um, that all gets tangled up with how we interpret who God is and what God is doing in our life. I mean, I, I hope every week that you hear in this space that God loves you, that God has known you before you were born, that the decisions that you make in life don't affect the outpouring of love. We, we did a sermon series one time called that God not only loves you but likes you. The, the, the decisions that you make in life that the ways that you engage in relationships, maybe the harm you've caused to other people or not, that God loves you still, constantly, through all of that. I hope you hear that in this pulpit, um, on this stage. But I don't know if we can hear that enough. And I don't know if hearing it is enough to actually change the tape that's in our head that sometimes tells us difference, that sometimes causes us to think that God is this harsh landover owner reaping where he's not supposed to and being harsh and whatever, right? And I think, actually, that is what the very last line is about. I don't think that the landowner, I don't think God was saying, you, go into the outer darkness, I think that God was naming a truth that was already present in that slave's life. He was already living in outer darkness because of the fear that he had over God. Right? We talk about fear sometimes like um, the overwhelmness of God is awesome and so like the fear of the Lord, but that's not, I'm talking about the, like, 
scared, like run away, scared of the dark sort of fear, right? And I think that the landowner God was naming that you're in outer darkness when you don't open yourself to the possibility of a loving God. So this sermon series is supposed to be about money, too, right? I've just talked about a lot of, like, how we are and how we engage with God. I want to spend just a few minutes talking about what that means for the, the world and how we engage in this world. Um, because what I want to do in this sermon series is, is cast a vision for God's economy that is abundant and full and also give you the tools of how to live in the U.S. economy, right? It's fine if I, I can post all these, like, ideas, pie in the sky, of, oh, isn't this great? But then we have to come back to our life and, like, how do we live in this U.S. economy when we're talking about God's economy, right? Um, I want to throw a couple statistics at you. Um, the average American family has $7,630 in um, revolving debt. So revolving debt, that's like credit cards. That's like if you go to um, a mattress or a couch store and you like buy it on financing and you're paying it back slowly. So we have uh, over $7,600 um, each family in credit card, in, in revolving debt. Um, let's add to that that the average student loan debt is $11,000, okay? Um, the average auto, the average, yeah, I know, my students are, so here's what you have to know about that. The reason it's average is because not everybody has student loan debt, but it's spread out across everybody. So the people that have student loan debt actually have far more than $11,000 because then some people don't actually have student loan debt, right? Yeah, I saw my Garrett students like, Woo! That's like a half a semester. Um, the average auto loan, and a lot of you guys don't have autos, right, because you live in the city, so that means that you're, you're still considered in this, um, but that means that other people probably have far more in auto loans, right? The average auto loan is $8,163, and the average mortgage loan, again, some of you don't have mortgages, but you're considered in this, is $7,322. Okay, so... Raise your hand if you're above average in debt. Oh, me too. Yeah. Raise your hand if you're, like, if you added this up, it's probably $100,000 of debt. Raise your hand if you're below average in debt. Wow, congratulations, right? Uh, and that has to do with if you have mortgages. I have two mortgages. That's a whole other story that we'll talk about. So I'm way above average in debt. Um, I, I throw these numbers out because... As I look at each and every one of you, we are, we're not statistics. We're not the average American. We are people with real numbers in our lives that um, weigh us down, right? That cause fear, that cause anxiety, that cause restlessness. Um, I'm going to tell you just a quick story. A couple years ago, uh, several years ago, actually, a long time ago, I'm old, um, I had a friend that... Um, he is actually a conductor now. So this, this story takes place probably about 12 years ago. And he is actually now a conductor at a world-famous opera. I knew him a long time ago, right after he was out of grad school. We were over at his house. He was a lowly, like, assistant 
conductor, rehearsal conductor, you know. And uh, he was right out of grad school, and um, we were at his house, and he poured some champagne, and he said, I want to toast. And we're like, oh, great, what are, you what are we toasting? He's like, I want to toast because I just pay made my last payment on my credit card debt. And I'm so happy. And, uh, and I said, oh, this is the first time I really had a friend that wasn't talking about, like, student loans. Oh, I'm so, but, like, credit card debt, which, which in my mind, I've always thought, like, oh, that's totally avoidable. You just pay it off at the end of every month, and if you don't need it, you don't buy it, right? Like, my little self-righteousness. Um, and I said, well, tell me about the credit card debt. Where, where did you get it? And, and he said, um, uh, well, I had to buy groceries when I was in grad school, you know? Like, um, I, he's like, I wish I had, like, a TV or a stereo or something to show you for my credit card debt. But it was just that I had to buy, like, ramen noodles and milk to make my way through grad school. And so, because it was my only option. And so I've been paying, and I'm so happy, you know, two years out of grad school to have paid off my credit card debt. And I realize, like, that's, that's life, right? Like, sometimes we get into debt not because... We're making frivolous choices, but because we're just trying to eat, we're just trying to make sure we have um, a business suit that we bought from Kohl's, not like Armani, but like Kohl's, so we can go to an interview, get a job, right? Like, we get into debt because this life is hard. So, then there's this congregation, and I know that many of us in this room are riddled with student loan debt or mortgage debt or medical, we didn't even talk about medical bills, credit card debt. And so each week I want to have a practical piece of advice. Here's the practical advice for this week. If you have debt in multiple locations, I'm no financial advisor, I feel like I should say that. <laughs> but if you have debt in multiple locations, don't pay a little on all of them pay the one with the highest interest rate because that will make a bigger difference, okay? That's the only financial advice I'm going to give. If you guys want to, if you, if you want to email me, I will connect you with resources. If you want to ask me after worship, I'll connect you with resources. There, there are places in the city that are um, doing some really great things about debt management, um, and we can, we can help because it is awful to live with that. It's awful. And you don't need to bear it alone, Okay because you're already in the outer darkness. Do you remember, um, so when we are bearing this alone, when we are overwhelmed by the debt that we have, um, our eyes are muddied. They're muddied by fear. They're muddied by anxiety. They're muddied by this sense of scarcity that we have. Right? Do you remember a couple of weeks ago, uh, I talked about the difference between abundance and scarcity? living those two lives. And when we live out of scarcity, we end up burying our talent in the ground, right? But when we operate out of abundance, we're living into the possibilities of God's economy. Uh, we're trading the resources that God has entrusted us with, and we're expecting to get double-fold back. Now I'm not talking in dollar cents, people, right? I'm talking about some sort of other double-fold. We're getting back... Um, the vision of God's economy, the vision of God's reign, the vision of the kingdom of God is coming back double-fold, right? So I want to show, share two, two ways to see that. There's this micro-lending organization called Kiva. Has anybody heard of it? Uh, you can 
Um, find, uh, for as little as $25, you can make a world of difference in someone's life. Um, you can uh, loan $25, and it will be bundled with other people who have loaned. And someone who, um, th there's a cute little video they show on Kiva, like someone who maybe has had two cows to plow their field and has lost one cow can um, have a loan to buy another cow so that um, he or she can provide for their family, right? So 98% um, repayment rate, or maybe it was 99, which is unheard of. I don't know what the industry standard is, but it is not 98% repayment rate, 99. So that's, that's amazing, right? And then when you get that money back, you can reinvest it in something else. You can donate it. But, but what you're getting back is not an interest rate return, but you have doubled your money in the kingdom of God. And you know what's really interesting about Kiva? The number one group. So you can also like bundle your money in groups. Groups of people can come together. The number one lender this last month, the number one lender this last year, the number one lender of all time at Kiva, is a group, I want to make sure I don't leave anybody out. It is a group called Atheist, Agnostics, Humanist, and Freethinkers. God's economy is being ushered in by Atheist, Agnostics, Humanist, and Freethinkers. Isn't that amazing? Um, and they don't even believe in God's economy, or maybe they do, but just not in religion. Another way, just quickly, is here in this community. God's economy is here. Um, as we look at the 2016 budget, I want to say thank you to the uh, 30 people who have already made a pledge, uh, totaling over $56,000, so we're over a quarter of a way to our goal, which is awesome. Can we clap? That's really great. Um, and I happen to know those 30 people are not living debt-free lives. I was actually just talking to one of the people that made a pledge. It's not an astronomical pledge, a pledge a couple of cups of coffee a week, something that, um, that he could do. I happen to know he is, we, we were just talking the other day about how overwhelmed he was feeling about some of the debt in his life. And yet he's not, again, I'm not asking you to make silly choices about investing in this church, right? Um, but he's got skin in the game here. He's saying, yeah, I am, I am riddled by this debt. And yet, I'm going to choose to invest in God's economy. I'm going to choose to invest in a place where I see the inbreaking of God's economy happening, where I see vibrant worship that is causing um, people to change their lives, that is causing um, people to feel welcome that have never felt welcome in a church before. I'm going to invest in this place because of small groups that, how many, raise your hand if, this is Carlos Carmena, but raise your hand if this church has messed you up. Yeah, right? I'm going to invest in that, right? That's what this guy is saying. I'm going to invest in the service and justice work that we do here that is also helping to break forth into God's economy. So in the church, in the kingdom of God, in God's economy, the thing is, now I'm not talking about the dollars and cents things, but the more that you invest, you get back double-fold. And that's what Jesus was praising, right? The more that you invest, you get back double-fold. Not in dollars and cents, but in this return and investment in this thing that we call God's economy, the kingdom of God. So as we conclude, I want to leave you with one final thought. The very, uh, in the middle of the passage, um, the one who was put in charge of more than $2.5 million 
which in my mind is a lot of money. <laughs> the one who is put in charge of that much money, God says, you have been trustworthy in a few things. You have been trustworthy in a few things. $2.5 million, I guess, is a few things in God's economy. I will put you in charge of many. God's economy is one of abundance. And so I pray that you bravely invest where you know you will get a large return.